If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to Revelation chapter 22. There should be a Bible in a, a chair near you in the rack. Uh, there's also a Bible app event. If you have the uh, Bible app on your smartphone uh, from the Version Bible app, you click on a little menu, look for an event near you. Uh, you should have information there uh, that would be helpful to you through the service. Revelation 22 is the last chapter in uh, the last book of the Bible, and we're actually concluding our journey through the book of Revelation, and it seems fitting we're doing it on a final chapter on a final day of the year. Uh, that uh, kind of makes sense for me. And I want to tell you, here's what I want to speak to you about. I want to tell you that there are good things ahead. There are good things waiting for you ahead in eternity. In fact, we're going to talk about the city. Uh, I put the title on this sermon, Why We're Moving to the City. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I get that from what we find here in the book of Revelation. In fact, the verse, the chapter rather before this, Revelation chapter 21 in verse 22, it says this, Now I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, the holy city. People tend to have diverse opinions considering uh, or thinking about cities. Um, they either love them or they hate them, uh, especially around here. There's no one around here. Well, a few people around here say, hey, what do you think about moving to New York City? Very few people say, eh, it'll be all right, whatever. Or if I stay here, I really don't care. You have an opinion uh, for sure uh, about cities. Um, I lived in a couple different apartments when I lived in the city of Pittsburgh, and uh, I was attending a university there, and I actually loved it. But I was young, and I loved all the things that a city offered, concerts, hanging out with your buddies. You could go down anywhere. There was music everywhere. You could find it on summer afternoons. Uh, even, it didn't even have to be a weekend, right? Uh, going out together, always having something to do, pirate games for $1.99 with your student ID. Oh, that was just good time. You know, I loved, and I still love, Deberg, you know? If I happen to be in Pittsburgh and I take a picture and I put it on social media, I always caption it, the holy city. It's not the holy city. The New Jerusalem is the holy city, but I always caption Pittsburgh as the holy city. But that's mostly due to nostalgia, remembering when I used to live there. I visited a lot of cities. I've stayed in a lot of cities around the world. I kind of started putting together a, a list of cities. Where have I been? And it's pretty, pretty big. New York City, Moscow, Atlanta, London, Buffalo, Toronto, Santiago, <laughs> Portland, Quito, Chicago, Tokyo, Las Vegas, Frankfurt, Los Angeles, Jerusalem, Rome, Tel Aviv. I've been everywhere, man, you know? <laughs> my, my take is that they're nice to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. But that's just me. It would be hard for me to move to a city, but I'm trusting in Christ and I'm moving to a city. I mean, we just read about it. I'm moving to a city. Not right now, but eventually a holy city. Now, if you're a country boy or a country gal, you might let that bother you. Don't. Don't let that bother you at all. Um, the city has gates. <laughs> and while nothing evil can enter the city, I believe that you are free to come and go as you please and enjoy the new heaven and the new earth as well as the new Jerusalem. It'll be great. You ever wonder what that'll be like? What will that be like to do that? Uh, that's a little what we're touching on this morning. There are good things that are awaiting God's people. Let me express that a little more precisely. We've gone through the book of Revelation. If you are trusting in the Lamb who was slain, your Savior and Lord, then there are good things waiting for you in next life. And Revelation 22 picks up with the writer John talking about the holy city, the new Jerusalem. I'm going to read all the verses, so hang on. Here we go. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Let me read that sentence again. No longer will there be any curse. You know, I just want to read it three times. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophet, sent His angel to show His servants the things that must soon take place. You see what he's saying in verse 6 there. He's saying this is just as sure as the whole Testament, this stuff that I've given you here. Verse 7. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of prophecy written in this scroll. I am John. I am them. I am the one who heard and saw these things. When I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. But he said, do not do that. I'm your fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. Let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, sexual immorality, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes away the words of this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Wow. There's a lot of information there. If we covered it all, we'd be here a couple days probably, right? But let's just talk about this thing that is awaiting us, what kind of things are awaiting us. And as we consider the holy city, let's kind of inventory some of the things that aren't waiting for us. And we can put all of these things under the category, the curse. There is nothing associated with the curse that is awaiting those who are trusting in the lamb that was slain. I say this because of verse 3. There is no longer, no longer will there be any curse. You know the curse, right? Adam and Eve sinned. God placed them under a curse. And that curse is really just summed up in four sentences in Genesis 3. It begins, and it says, as God is speaking to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, 
you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then he goes on and he says to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate of the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful, painful toil, you will eat from the food of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, those things that are talked about here in the curse are pretty plentiful in our world today. But they are not in the holy city. They are not waiting for us. I mean, the curse brought us pain. <laughs> pain without meeting. Pain starting with the pain of childbirth and expanding throughout life. To the woman, he says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, it will give birth to children. Have you ever wondered... Really, have you ever thought about this? Why does it have to be painful to give birth to a child? Would you not think that the creator of the entire universe could come up with a better system so it didn't hurt, so it wasn't hard, so it wasn't labor to do that? Wouldn't you think that he could come up with something better than that? He did. <laughs> but we broke it. The curse introduced pain. Pain that actually would be non-essential, and therefore pain that lacks meaning. I personally believe that God's statement concerning the pain of childbirth is kind of the tip of the iceberg. Before Adam and Eve sinned, I don't think there was any meaningless pain. I mean, there's probably the kind of pain that if you put your hand on a stove, you knew to get it off the stove. Maybe, you know, that kind of pain. But the meaningless pain, the obscene pain, the absurd pain, the unreasonable pain, the unmanageable pain, the unnecessary pain that we experience day by day by day, that's a result of the fall of humankind. It's part of the curse. And because of Revelation 22.3, those first words, no longer will there be any curse, we know there's no pain waiting for us in the holy city. Anyone you know who is in pain, if they're trusting in the Lamb who was slain, that pain is not waiting for them on the other side. The curse is gone. Something else that is not waiting for us? Conflict. I'm talking about the kind of conflict that is born of selfishness. Starting with Adam and Eve and progressing all the way up to Laurel and Steve. Laurel's my wife, right? And I'm Steve. That kind of conflict that is unnecessary, that's part of the curse on humankind. I say that because of verse 3 in the latter part of chapter 3 of, Rev, Rev, eh, of Genesis. Wow, come on, Shields, get it together. Don't you hate it when you do that? When God places the curse on humankind, in Genesis 3, in the latter part of verse 16, he says this, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. He's speaking to Eve. I've talked about this countless times before. I like to think that what he's saying is that Laura will not be able to resist me. Her desire will be for me. <laughs> that has not been my experience every day, right? Yeah. Most scholars understand that phrase, your desire will be for your husband, to be parallel to sin's desire for Cain. If you read when Cain kills Abel, God warns him and says, sin desires you. And what that means is sin wants to control you. And so back here in chapter 3, verse 16, when he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, he's saying you will want to control him. You will want to control him, and you'll want to control the relationship. And that will lead to conflict. And likewise, the phrase where it says, he will rule over you, Eve. 
God's saying he's going to be just as bad. And he's going to want to control the relationship. And the harmony that you once had, the trust that you once enjoyed with one another, that has been damaged. Conflict rooted in self-centeredness is part of the curse. It's not limited to marriages, you understand. It's found in the workplace. You found it there, right? It's found in the extended family. You found it there, right? It's demonstrated on the highway. You found it there, right? Neighborhoods, it's everywhere. But because of the words that open in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, we know there is no such conflict waiting for us in the holy city. The curse is gone. By the way, when I hear someone say, I hate cities, generally this is the part they hate. The conflict. They hate the conflict that comes with the crowdedness, with the coldness, with the shallowness, with the annoyingness that is in a city. That's why people leave the city and come and make Clearfield County their home sometimes. It's because the people there are so annoying. But you and I know this is true. People are just as annoying in our area as they are in the city. There's just not as many of them. (laughs) Because people are people. Well, they're not annoying in the holy city. They are not annoying in the holy city. And because of the words of Revelation 22.3, we know there's no conflict waiting for us curse is gone. Something else that's not waiting for us is toil, frustration, meaningless frustration, meaningless toil. You see it arrived with the curse of Adam and Eve. There in the book of Genesis, it says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through your painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. If you've ever done any farming, and I grew up on a farm, you know that nature is both friend and foe. It's true. It's your friend because the soil, the rain, the sunshine, they make all things grow. And it's your foe because it doesn't always weigh the work the way you hope. Weeds, dry spells, scorching heat, too much rain, insects, blight, it can be a problem. That is all due to the curse. But because of the words of Revelation 22.3, no longer any curse. We know that general uncooperativeness Uncooperativeness of nature is not in the holy city. The curse is gone. One more thing that's not in the holy city. Death as an enemy. Death is something that came through the curse. When you eat thereof, you will surely die. They were warned. Now we understand that when a believer has been suffering and he dies and goes to be with Jesus, there is cause for rejoicing. We did that when Barry Neff passed away. After years of dementia, He no longer has dementia. It was such a relief for me. It's such a celebration. So in one sense, as believers, we see death as kind of a friend because Christ has the victory and death has been swallowed up in victory, 1 Corinthians tells us. But understand, Genesis speaks of death with the horror of futility. It says in verse 19, by the sweat of your brow you eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And that kind of death is not our friend. That kind of death is a death without Christ, it's a death without God, it's a death of futility. It's an ugly thing. In fact, the Bible calls death our enemy. In 1 Corinthians 15.26, which is the resurrection chapter of the Bible, It says the last enemy to be destroyed 
is death. It's our enemy, but it's defeated. And insofar as it is part of the curse, I hate death. But (laughs) death is absent from the holy city. The curse is gone. You see, coming in that stable 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to eliminate all these things, to eliminate the curse. And we sang about it on Christmas Eve. We, we stood up together and we sang, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, the blessings are going to flow. Woo, I like it. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Nothing associated with the curse awaits you in the holy city. That's why we're moving to the city. That's why we're moving to the city. The final chapter of the final book of the Bible tells us that there are actually great things waiting for us in the city. It says there's water of life. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, drawn, I'm sorry, down the middle of the great street in the city. That's a city, isn't it? It's a city. It's got a river running down the main drag. That's just so odd. It's like nothing I've ever imagined. Surely nothing we've ever seen before. And the river there, it's special. It has life-giving water. The other place, by the way, the other place, there's no water there. There's no life there. Jesus describes it with these words, their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. No river with the water of life flowing there. You may wonder to yourself, okay, the river of the water of life is flowing through a place where there is no death. What's that? I don't get that. Why does God put the river of the water of life in a place where there is no death anyway? Sounds like a good question until you consider that death, I'm sorry, until you consider that living is more than just breathing. Right? Jesus said that when he came, he came that we might have life. Then he added something. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and they might have it to the full. The King James said they might have it more abundantly. So the river of the water of life isn't there just to keep you alive. The river of the water of life is there so that you can really live. And really really living, (laughs) that's what awaits us in the holy city. This water of life comes from God. It says it comes from the throne of God and from the Lamb. It kind of makes me think of when Jesus was talking to a woman at a well one time in in Samaria. Do you you remember that story? He's speaking and and he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink and he would have given you living water. You understand, when Jesus offers this water, he's not solving a manpower problem for the woman. That's what she thinks. In fact, later on, she eventually says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. But Jesus isn't solving plumbing problems for her, right? Jesus is talking about providing satisfaction. Satisfaction in everything. And there is water from the throne of God and from the Lamb awaiting us to satisfy our souls. There are great things waiting for us. The water of life, the tree of life. It was in the garden, but it was unavailable to Adam and Eve, but it awaits you and me. 
I mean, look at verse 2. If your Bibles are still open, it says in the second part of verse 2, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. I am not a Greek scholar, but Greek scholars look at that and they say, you know what that is? That's saying it bears fruit every month, and every month it bears a different kind of fruit. Wow, there's some biology going on there, right? (laughs) Wow. All I can think of is pies. (laughs) Right? And there's a certain thankfulness in my heart that pumpkins don't grow on trees. <laughs> mm. Tree of life, there's probably nothing better to eat. But honestly, you know, it's not about pies, right? You know, it's about life. The tree of life is about life. Even the leaves are about life. For the healing of the nations. And time theorists have a lot of different ideas about what that means. Some of them see it as literally healing the nations who are around at the time, in new heaven and new earth. Others see it as kind of the far-reaching effects of the death of Christ and his redeeming power. It's not necessarily healing of some kind of ill, but it's promoting the enjoyment of life. I I don't know what it means, but here's what I'm sure of. (laughs) It's good, and it remedies anything that would be bad because it's for healing, and it awaits you and me. One of the most remarkable realities of the holy city is that it's God and humankind together. As it speaks to us, Revelation 22.4 says, they will see his face. We'll see God's face. And his name will be on their foreheads, face to face with God, together with our Maker and Redeemer. He is dedicated to us as we are there. And we are dedicated to him in his presence. And we find meaning in serving him. And he marks us with his name. Purpose, meaning, joy, intimacy, friendship, fulfillment, God and humankind together. Man, there are some great things waiting for us. And the passage kind of reminds me of how we, how we move toward what's waiting for us. And first and foremost, you have to be a Christ follower in order for this to be waiting for you. You have to be someone who has turned from your sin and placed your faith in the Lamb who was slain for your sin. You have to have trusted Christ to save you from God's wrath. And that secures your place in the holy city. And nothing else can. Only Jesus can do that. And then beyond that, as you move forward from that place, it just makes sense that you would make God the object of your allegiance and your affection. It is so easy to make something else the object of your affection. I've been guilty of making people the center of my life. I've been guilty of making my family the center of my life. You'd think that would be a good idea. Family first. It sounds like a good idea, but it's a problem when you put your family in a place that only God should stand. Make God the object of your allegiance and your affection. I've also made my adversaries the center of my life. Have you done that? (laughs) It's never good. It gives them control. And that is not the way to move forward toward what awaits us in the holy city. You can make Christian leaders the focus, the center of your affection. For example, Rick Warren. I love Rick Warren. Charles Stanley. I love Charles Stanley. Those are great preachers, great speakers. But Rick Warren and Charles Stanley do not want to be the center of your spiritual life. They know better. You can make your uncle, that missionary who serves God in the jungles of Colombia, he should be the 
center of your affection. He doesn't want to be the center of your affection. You can make Pastor Steve the center of your spiritual life. Please do not do that. I don't deserve to be there at all. But it's easy to do that, unless you think, well, I would never do that. Who would do that? John, the man who wrote the book of Revelation. He did it right there. You just heard me read about it in verse 8. He said, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard, had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. But he said, don't do that. I'm your fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. And then two words, he says, the angel says, two words, worship God. As you move toward what awaits you, don't ever let anyone or anything become more important than the one who made you and redeemed you. And that's how you prepare for what awaits you. Moving toward what awaits us means filling our life with doing good. You understand your place is secured in heaven by Christ going to the cross and paying for your sin. Verse 12 tells us there are rewards regarding how you live. I mean, in verse 12, Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. So you live your life in order to please the one who bought you. You make that a priority, your time, your possessions, your, your very self. You give sacrificially to honor him, knowing that he will reward you. That is one of the ways you prepare for what awaits you in the holy city. And you prepare for what awaits you as you continue to trust him wholeheartedly. You trust that he has removed your guilt and shame. And I want to tell you, if you haven't experienced this as a Christian, I marvel at you because there is an enemy of your soul that will tell you over and over again that your guilt and shame remain even though you've confessed them to the one who died to take them away. The enemy of your soul is a liar. You understand that? The very last chapter of the book, in verse 14, which we read moments ago, said if you've been washed by Christ, you've been washed by Christ. Verse 14, blessed are those who have washed their robes that they may have the right. Wow, that's strong language, isn't it? They might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Your passage to the city, is purchased by the one who made you clean. And you trust that he has transformed you, your thinking and your lifestyle. Verse 15 says, outside there are dogs, those who practice magic arts. You're not like that. You've been changed. There's idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood, but you're not like that. You've been changed. But Pastor Steve, every now and then, I don't care. I don't care. If you have turned from your sin and are trusting Christ, Yeah, you're not going to be perfect, but you're not the same person you were before you encountered Christ. If you are, then you probably didn't really encounter Christ. He transforms you. He makes you into a new person. And he gives you life freely. Memorize this verse probably in 1982. Don't ask me how I can remember that I memorized Revelation 22, 17 in 1982 because I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. But I can remember where I was when I was memorizing this verse. I had it written on an index card. Listen as I quote it for you. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty 
Come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Free gift. You trust that He has freely given you eternal life. And that's what moving toward what awaits you is all about. And it's just common sense that you would do these things. We have covered a lot of ground in the book of Revelation. I want to tell you honestly, I did not want to preach from this book. John and Gail, you've known me probably, Vernon and Sharon, you've known me a long time. How many times have somebody said, you should preach from Revelation? I'm like, I just don't want to do that. I am so glad I did. I have loved preparing this series. I hope that it's been meaningful to you. I hope that you have learned through these past 12 sermons, this is the 13th in the series, I hope you have learned that all those things that bother you, injustice, evil, wickedness, abuse, those are the same things that bother God. And He will do something about it. If one repents, one can be forgiven. If one doesn't repent, the bowls of wrath. I hope you have seen that the Lamb who was slain is our only hope of salvation. And He is not just a hope like, boy, I sure hope I'm saved. He is a for sure thing. He has made it happen through his blood. I hope you have discovered that the enemy of your soul, Satan, is literally powerless before the one who made heaven and earth. And one day, he will be completely vanquished. And it isn't a matter of God getting enough power to do it. It's a matter of God just saying, it's time. That's all. No more. It's over. I hope you have understood that there is a judgment coming. (laughs) And those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are spared the judgment. (laughs) I hope you have seen that there is something marvelous awaiting us. A holy city, a new heaven, a new earth, an intimacy with the one we love the most. You hear it all the time, and I think it's beautiful. When someone passes away, someone else will say, well, now he's with mom. Now she's with dad. Husbands and wives, you know, reunited. I think it's lovely. I think it's beautiful. But I want to tell you, (laughs) as much as I love my wife, and if she were gone, I would want to see her again, my first stop is going to be at the lamb. I want to see the lamb who was slain for me. I want to see his face. I want to gaze upon His beauty. I want to worship Him. Hmm. We have learned that the only reason to fear the end of time is if you are resisting God and will not turn to Him. But if you humble yourself and repent of your sin and trust in Him, then those words, the Spirit and the Bride say, come, and the one who hears says, come, and anyone who's thirsty can come and Take the free gift of the water of life. It's for you. All you need to do is say, I'm so stupid to resist. I'm so foolish to think that sin is worth it. I do not want to be subject to his wrath. I want the good stuff that awaits us. I want him. If you haven't done that, do it today. In fact, I want to conclude our time praying that you would do it today. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together.
Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father in heaven, we know that um, your word is true. We have seen how it is sharper than any double-edged sword. We have seen how you, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. And I'm guessing that most of the people standing here today, a long time ago, heard the Spirit say, come. And heard the believers around them say, join us. And they came and took freely of the gift of the water of life. But if there's anyone among us, God, that isn't sure of that, anyone that was maybe relying on, I go to church on Sundays, or maybe relying on their own works, or anyone that was just resisting the idea that they needed a Savior, a Lamb to be slain for them. As a bride of Christ, those of us that are believers would say to them, come. (laughs) And you, Holy Spirit, would say to them, come. And I pray that they might turn their hearts toward you, And that when they see your beauty, God, they would run to you. They would trust that you, Jesus, were slain for them from the foundation of the world. And that as they place their trust in you, you, Father in heaven, forgive their sins. And you take away their unrighteousness. And you remove their shame. And they simply need to trust you. I pray that all of us will have done that. And having done that, And recognizing the value of it, we'll hardly even need anyone to tell us how to go from here. Because the love of Christ will compel us to do the very things that we've spoken about. To make you, God, our allegiance and affection and to fill our lives with doing good to honor you and to live as ones who trust you wholeheartedly. This is our prayer, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.